So, Adam, when you were doing stand-up back in the day, were you trying to sort of carve away at yourself and get to some sort of, you know, authentic version of yourself? Or were you playing Adam, the wacky stand-up guy? (laughs) I was desperately avoiding Adam, the wacky stand-up guy. He's a jerk. Yeah. I avoided trying to find a persona like the plague. I really wanted to find the version of me uh, that was funny, but I kind of wanted to strip away like any kind of artifice. So the first kind of year or so that I was doing standup, it was very, it was very confessional and it was very uh, reactive. Like we were talking about in the very first episode, I think we're talking about essentially how, when you first start stand-up, you are conceiving of a way that you are funny. Uh, and you're largely thinking of, oh, I was funny in this situation. So you're essentially like recontextualizing uh, anecdotal things that happened to you. This is a story I tell at parties, that sort of thing. So I was trying really hard for them to just kind of see me as me. And as... It's funny, as things went on, uh, you know, I think there's there's room to move around in there. And I think there's some artifice in all performances. So that's not that's not a, a cardinal sin. And uh, stand-up comedy is not just you reading your journal. So uh, I, I did I did move around in that over time. But um, I there were a lot of people who who tried on things and more power to them. You have to find the thing that you are as you're developing your stand-up persona. But I never encountered anybody who was quite so desperate and reached such lows as a comedian who started, I think it was about six or seven months after I started, uh, a fellow by the name of Neil, who I'd like to tell you about today. All right, Neil. Yes. Um, I remember, yeah, it had been around six or seven months, I think. Maybe a year. But I had been doing stand-up. So I had I had come to know everybody and love everybody. And, you know, everyone in Newfoundland, we're just a ragtag group of misfit toys uh, doing stand-up, hoping for time at the local Yuck Yucks for its uh, Pro-Am night, where essentially they would do, before the professional show, they would do what was essentially um, a bit of an open mic thing. It was a mixture of people who had more experience and people trying it out for the first time allocated like a a measly, you know, three to five minutes. And Mm -hmm. that's how you figured it out. And so the better you did and the more you seemed to be into it, the gradual little bits of time that you would get. So you were kind of measured your success. It's like, I went from three minutes to seven minutes in three months. All right. That's how you would do it. It'd be how much material they would give you to play around with. And uh, Neil became something of a superstar very quickly, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Neil came in to the uh, Pro-Am one night, and he was this uh, very nervous-looking fellow with a, uh, a, a, a bit of, a, um, a, bit of a, a lean physique and a... Uh, a spiked mohawk. Okay. And I had, uh, I had mistook 
his uh, his nervousness kind of for first time jitters. So I, I introduced myself to him, and he wasn't really talking to anybody else. And we we're just talking about uh, stand up and the usual kind of introductions. I was like, so what? What like what do you do? What are you, what are you planned on? If this is your first time, like what ideas do you have? What are you what are you going to do tonight? And he turned to me, and he said, well. What I like to do is, this is what I have planned. First, I get up on stage and act like a fag. Then I pretend to hit on guys in the audience. And that was exactly what he told me. Uh. Yeah. That was my reaction. But I honestly thought he was kidding. Like, he was like, oh, he's putting me on. He is telling me the worst thing. <laughs> right. Right. And so I said, oh, that's great. That's great. I do my act exclusively in blackface. We should go on the road. And I just kind of left it at that <laughs> because there's no way that was a serious thing. Chris, this was my undoing. So I, this may be getting ahead of the story a little bit, uh -huh. but in fact, I am not clear on what the distinction is between hitting on guys and pretending to hit on guys. <laughs> uh, well, one, you can... You can wave your hands and say, JK. You can do that. Trust me. That's a really good get out of a bad hookup situation move. Yes. I, too, was a 14-year-old a, a nervously talking to girls at one point. In fact, I'm still that today. <laughs> <laughs> but I assumed, and, and I think anyone else who, who overheard that conversation assumed, oh, yeah, he's not serious. He's, he's, he's a jokester. He's, he's, he's just busting balls. That's, that's just a silly thing to say. But he gets up there. And he is prancing about merrily. He is uh, talking in a stereotypical, effeminate way. And his jokes were all kind of street jokes about being gay. Street jokes? That were just gay panic jokes. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Like a street joke, I guess, to explain that term for, for those who were similarly cocking an eyebrow just now. Although I think you pieced it together. <laughs> Is just that. It's just a, a, like a common joke that has no author, basically. It's just... Public domain. Exactly. Lore. I, yes, it's very much the lore of comedy. I mean, I would, I, you know, because you hope when you hear about somebody who's doing sort of a gay, pretending to be gay routine, that if they're doing street jokes, I, there's a whole other set of connotations that, that you might aspire to. Yeah. Aspiration and Neil did not go together. Mm. But that's largely what he did. And when material was running low, he would just... <laughs> material was running low. Yeah, because there were street yeah, jokes he that he no knew. Right, right. Okay. And then, then he would <laughs> Because just material be like, was already low. Yeah. Oh, it's... it's Sure. <laughs> this was low-hanging fruit, if you'll pardon the pun. Oi. All right. Thank you. But... But he would... He would go through the street jokes that he knew... And because he was running around on stage in this manic way, like it really engaged people. They were dying. They were they were in hysterics. They loved it. Sure. He had energy, I'm sure. Yes. And all of our faces dropped, those of us in the darkness. Because <laughs> <laughs> anyone who overheard that conversation thought I was kidding. Thought he was kidding. I thought he was kidding. Right. And, yeah, then he would sort of hit on uh, older couples uh, in the audience by pretending to try and pick up the husband 
you know, some 50-year-old guy who just wandered out of Canadian Tire and decided to take in a comedy show with his missus. Yeah, raw meat. Yeah. So, um, two questions. Okay. Were there other stand-up were there were there stand-up comics in the scene who were gay men? No. Hmm. It was Newfoundland, so there was ten of us. Well, sure. <laughs> And so it, it did, it did not get represented. No, I understand that it might be different now, uh, because one of the things I do love about going back to Newfoundland is that there's like tons more people doing it each time I go back. So it's like lovely to see. So I think that has changed a lot. Do you think that the, um, um, so I only have a very, I, I've been to Newfoundland several times, but I only have a very peripheral sense of what it's like to be gay in Newfoundland. Uh, especially how, ten, I don't know how long ago this was, 10 years ago, maybe? I don't mm -hmm. know. And my sense of roughly what uh, gay people your age would have done uh, is uh, move to Montreal. <laughs> uh, I think that was a big part of it. <laughs> I think that was still something, yes. So I guess I'm also just thinking about um, how likely this shtick was to go down well mm. in that scene where there just aren't a lot of even in even in urban St. John's, there's not is there not as much of a gay community that you know that most people would have encountered the real thing and therefore wouldn't find this pale simulacrum to be as funny. Hmm. I, I think if there was like a more vocal and present gay community, because there certainly wasn't one that I was aware of when I was growing up there, and. That seemed a little bit different when I had returned, but it's still, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly uh, outspoken, we'll say. Hmm. Like, I don't, I don't think there was, and this is, this is coming from the perspective of someone who did not go hunting for it. So sure, sure, I, sure. I, I will take that, that caveat. I'm sure there are things that I missed. Like I knew that there was, and I'm blanking on which bar it was, but there was a known gay bar um, at least one downtown. And, but I know that that, that changed over. <laughs> so when I was growing up, that was no longer a gay bar, but it, it had been earlier. Right. Uh, but aside from that, like the fact that I'm sort of grasping at straws, trying to think of that now that you've asked it, it's like, well, I knew of a gay bar. I'm not sure which one it was, but it was gone by the time I was drinking age. <laughs> uh, anyway, this is all, this is all fine. And, and I, I don't want to, um, accidentally paint uh, Newfoundland as some sort of ragingly homophobic place. Mm. It's just not a place where uh, there are as many vocal gays mingling with the, with the straights. Yes. That said, I do think it's a lot different now. Like from what I, from what I've seen more recently that has changed, but even, yeah, even a decade ago, that was not the case. So did Neil continue with this uh, vein of comedy? Uh, yes, despite everyone's real discomfort with it. D despite critical success, or not, <laughs> despite popular success and critical dismissal. Mm -hmm. So so he did not, did he end up not integrating with the stand-up community? Uh, yes, here was the thing. So he was extremely popular because he always, like he would, with subsequent shows, he did well. In fact, that first night he performed, I had to follow him and I thought it's like, well, hold on. I've been doing this for almost a year or a year or so, however long it was. I was like, I'm going to put this asshole in his place. How dare he? 
Right. Because all of us were pretty offended by what he had done <laughs> and thought it was really gross. And uh, I can't remember who explained who exclaimed this, but someone said quietly from the from the back while we were all in darkness, uh, this is pink face. This is horrible. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so I went up. And I was like, well, you know what? I have to start strong. I'm going to go with my best jokes. I'm going to hit them hard. I'm going to show what a real comic does. And I flatlined for seven minutes to an audience that despised me. Right. Because <laughs> they'd found they'd found the drug they were looking for. Yes. They, they knew their savior, and their savior's name was Neil. <laughs> uh, here's, here's another question. Was Neil, is Neil gay? No. Okay. Nope. Uh, that was a thing I discovered. See, Neil had, Neil was a heel. Neil had training in local wrestling. Oh, all right. And his thing was, I'm the villain. I'm the big gay boy who's going to kiss you. Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, he was, he was the villain because he was essentially a gay stereotype who's talk back to the audience was i'm going to get in the ring i'm going to you know wrestle these men to submit submission and then i'm going to kiss them all over huh yeah. so he was he was his wrestling bad guy persona was gay panic personified exactly he was like gold dust without the benefit of actually being gay as i believe the wwe wrestler gold dust was footnote from the future no apparently he wasn't Hey, you have gone much deeper in the in the well of uh, WWE re- uh, references than I can follow. <laughs> those, are, those are clear, fresh waters that I have not tasted. That is okay. <laughs> that is more than okay. Uh, wrestling is silly and can be enjoyed by all. But uh, yes, I'm not. Is... I'm not disapproving of it. Sure. Uh, and very much has, at least in terms of professional wrestling on television, very much has its uh, its its toes in the water of comedy. But right, Neil was a raging success <laughs> immediately, mm. and no one wanted to follow him for two reasons. Uh, there was the obvious objections to his act, but the fact that he would do so well also meant that. Regardless of how good you were, and there were a number of very good comics who would follow him, not just little old me, who was never very good, but uh, Neil would be followed by the likes of, uh, you know, Paul Warford and uh, Sean Burton and Sarah Walsh, all these really great Newfoundland comics, and they'd just eat shit. <laughs> they would just eat right. shit right. because of uh, you, you people who were wrapped up in Neil and were desperately wanting more, and then you had uh, nervous, angsty people uh, – Maybe not angsty. Maybe that was just me. But you had... You, you, <laughs> oh, you, oh, I doubt it was just you. <laughs> <laughs> but you had the usual types of, you know, uh, uh, you know, dorky, lovable uh, neurotics going up to tell their jokes. And it would just tank. Hmm. And I think, at least for me, I don't know about the rest of them. Like, this was the first time in my life I've ever hated an audience. Just despised an audience. <laughs> And this would happen every time it would go over well. And he didn't change the act at all for about three months. And whether it was people getting sick of repeats from audiences coming back to see him or if it was younger audiences or just generally less receptive audiences going, no, no, thank you, not today. 
there were times when he would struggle on stage, but he would never fully, fully tank, sad to say. And everybody, after a while, there's this weird thing in comedy where you just say, well, don't argue with success, regardless of what it is. Right. And I found myself in the <laughs> decidedly unlikable position of having to go, yes, I will argue with this. This is terrible, and this should not be here. <laughs> and a few people were on my side, but not as many as you'd think. Uh, amongst them who were not were the <laughs> – there was the guy, uh, Brock, who used to book and manage the uh, club. I should uh, add as a postscript that the Newfoundland Yuck Yucks has since closed due to mismanagement. <laughs> uh but not only did he start securing paid gigs for neil right away but he would frequently lecture me for not being enough like neil oh yeah Hmm. this man was not a comic this was a guy uh who i believe had previously owned a sports equipment store right so both in terms of the the cultural context but uh, of where neil's humor was coming from but also in terms of it's all about the i guess you don't have benjamins in canada it's all about the elizabeths yeah <laughs> it's all about the five dollar bill you turn into spock my favorite canadian prank uh side note i once went to a store that had the sign up that says please stop turning your five dollar bills into spocks we will not accept them <laughs> <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Neil was on the rise. And when there was uh, some failings on his part, he immediately reacted. I have to say, in addition to his energy, Neil was pretty business savvy in a sense. Because he saw, oh, my product's no longer working. I need jokes. <laughs> he finally realized three months in, jokes might be important. <laughs> so rather than create any and there are people, like, one of the best people uh, ever in uh, Newfoundland stand-up community is a fellow by the name of Steve Coombs, who used to run the Pro-Am night when Yuck Yucks was around. The nicest fella who always paid attention to comics and always talked to them afterwards and would, would approach you like this. He wouldn't say, here's what you did right or wrong, which a lot of comics would do, <laughs> regardless of uh, where they were. Uh, uh, Steve would, would be like, I really like this, and, you know, I, I, I could talk to you about what you're doing if you want to hear it. But if you don't want to hear it, that's okay. Like, I'm just a guy who does it, too, so, no, no, like, no pressure. I, I, just, I, just, I just made some, some notes if you want to talk about it. And so he is, he is the sweetest person, and he's the, exactly the kind of person you want running a room for new and newish people and for people to try new material. Really great guy. And so... He felt kind of sorry for Neil. And he felt sorry for Neil. Yes. Because. Because Neil didn't have jokes. Neil did not have jokes. And okay. he, he did not like the act, but he thought, oh, this is just someone who's desperate for a hook. If we get him some jokes, we can get, we can get him on the straight and narrow. So to speak. Poor sweet Steve. Dear deluded Steve. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Neil took this to heart. And he responded not by writing his own jokes, but in fact, taking the more successful ones from other comics. Of course. Of course. So whoever was not on that night, their material, especially if that material was sexual in nature in any way, would be suddenly done by Neil. So that's how it was planned. And of course, since we're a very small group, we're a close-knit group of 10 to 12 people, we all knew what was going on. And 
we tried to again object to this it's like okay now he's actually like you know he's 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 taking from other people who have crafted you know these jokes after after however long they're doing it and it's not simply a matter of well you just write new jokes it's 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 bad for everybody like you you kind of rob them of their material and then it becomes associated with him. So if they ever do it, they're like, oh, wait, I, I heard that from Neil Fyander. I said his last name. Oh, well. <laughs> um, and oh, yeah, cause no one could figure out who this was. <laughs> <laughs> I was being so coy and everything. <laughs> and it, it, they wouldn't like, they would suddenly have that. Like the reputation wouldn't like, he would not be hurt. They would, because they were, less well-known and not blowing up as quickly as he was. And he, and he had the support of the club because the club was like, well, he makes them laugh and making them laugh helps us sell chicken wings, which is where the real money is. Right. <laughs> so we're not going to argue with it. And again, this continued to be a problem. And he nonetheless, because he had the support of the club, he would just get attached to gigs. Other comedians would end up losing jobs because the head office folks in Toronto would be receiving these emails of, you've got to put Neil on more shows. He's, he's the next big thing. And so even though he had never done, say, like even a 20-minute set at the Pro-Am night to close it out, to be the headliner of the Pro-Am night, uh, hmm. they, they would say, oh, he should host this event for this big comedian coming into town, like Nikki Payne, who is quite well known in Canada and was on last comic standing and everything. Uh, there was a new year show where uh, Sarah Walsh, again, a very established, great Newfoundland comedian was supposed to open for her. And again, they have very complimentary styles and also are pals. So it made sense to put them on right. together. But instead, uh, uh, Brock who owned the club uh, basically told the Toronto office that it's like, no, no, no. If you want that show to succeed, you have to put Neil on. So Sarah was fired from a gig she didn't even get to do. <laughs> she didn't yeah. even have a bad opening night and then get fired later, which happened to me, <laughs> incidentally. <laughs> but mm -hmm. instead, uh, she she was just told, no, you've been you've been swapped out. And it just became this harsh reality of no one cares about the morals of this whether it is for the gay panic jokes that he's doing or for stealing other people's material all that matters is that product is being moved which right. i think a lot of us naively thought that wouldn't be the case i thought that we all thought somebody would take a stand because over time as he grew more popular and as more audiences were coming in and more audiences were being exposed to him uh audiences would write like this is really gross and they would say that on comment cards. Like, you need to talk to that guy. This is not okay. Huh. Yeah. But they were still coming. But they were I still... I mean, maybe not those same people, but, you know. <laughs> but that is the whole thing, right? Like, the, the, the club's job is to build an audience. And they were trying to take this shortcut. Mm -hmm. But they were building an audience that uh, didn't want most of the products that were available, so to speak. If mm -hmm. you're thinking of comics as the products that you're trying to sell. They're not getting the audience for most of the comics. They're getting... You know, they're getting the audience for this one comic who's going to be turning off quite a lot of potential customers. But maybe he is, I mean, maybe from a business standpoint, putting all your eggs in Neil's basket. 
at least was a good short-term um, policy. I doubt it was a good long-term one. No, as it turns out, it wasn't. Uh, as since Neil's successes were in stealing from local comics jokes and all comics who really didn't have any power, he decided to go a little bit further. And so after doing weekends and even being flown out to places by uh, Yak Yak Stove, open for different comics, he would then do those comics jokes the next night, <laughs> like when after or the next weekend, I should say, after they had left. <laughs> so the, the big name comics. Yes. Ah. People you would know if, if you watch Canadian comedy, which is probably nobody, but still. <laughs> One thing that's kind of frustrating about the pink face uh, is, and, and, and his approach of being very sort of aggressively sexually flirtatious towards audience members who may or may not be up for it, um, is that there was a brief period of my band where I was starting to play around with a somewhat similar persona of just being a bit sexually aggressive, not inappropriate, mm -hmm. but being very flirty and forward with, you know, people in with men in the audience who probably were not gay. And when I was doing it, it was not meant to be funny it was meant to be a it was it was a political act right it was yeah. a way of asserting that my i don't want to quite say sexuality but that like that that desire could like there needed to be a place for it and if it made you uncomfortable well too bad because it's legit and it's here and it's needed and there are ways that that can go very very wrong but there's also a sense where where sometimes that kind of political aggressiveness and sexual aggressiveness is appropriate and liberating and um, might help put put people in their place who assume that the world is set up with their perspective in mind. I never went very far with this because it wasn't really that kind of band <laughs> and I wasn't very good at playing that kind of part. Right. Uh, or I wasn't very motivated to keep it up very much, but... It was a road that I started to try out and go down. And anyway, so it feels like in a certain sense that there was a certain similarity in the actions, but to very opposite political ends. And so yes. it feels like, again, he sort of stole my act. <laughs> you Are Not Funny is brought to you by Megaphonic FM. Go to megaphonic.fm and check out all our fancy little podcasts, including And Thereby Hangs a Tale, in which Adam here asks people to tell their most remarkable stories. It's true. As of this recording, <laughs> you can uh, listen to someone tell a tale of being at the G20 for a magazine that technically didn't exist and what it's like to be in a coma after a mystery flu more or less incapacitates you. It's not happy. Nope. Or is it? So this time around, it's time for the joke bit. It's time for jokes. Yay. So this time around, I, I assume the theme is uh, authenticity. Yes, indeed. Okay. So Adam, you go first this time. All right. So as we're since we're using the theme of authenticity, I would often use my act to talk about things that actually affected me and you know, who I was and and who I am. And so as such, what came up a lot, surprise, surprise, was depression and trying to mine uh, depression and anxiety and all sorts of mental illness for laughs that I am afflicted with uh, came up. So I offer this one-liner on the subject of depression. Being depressed is like having a superpower. I feel like I am one of the X-Men, except my mutant power is that I cry at work. 
Chris. All right. Very similarly, I also have a one-liner that is relevant to today's episode, which I will explain after the break. Adam, what does VIP stand for? Hmm. I don't know. What does VIP stand for? Very important P. You will have to break this down. (laughs) So that was uh, a joke that I stole from a website called Bad Kids Jokes. Oh, I see. (laughs) (laughs) Tumblr.com. And it is indeed. I was indeed looking for uh, a street joke <laughs> to, to steal and be inauthentic with. Uh, and then uh, since I didn't know where that's where your story was going to go before I picked that joke out, that dovetailed quite nicely. Yes. But I feel like it is totally fair to steal jokes from kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially kids on websites who are not credited by their name or anything. Not even like from Carlos, age seven. Hmm. But also I just, I enjoy, I enjoyed that joke. Very important P. I'm glad somebody did. (laughs) (laughs) It's good because you think the P is going to stand for something and it just stands for P Mm -hmm. as in, you know, P as in urine. (sighs) I I don't, I don't really hold any of my urinations above any others. They're all important, Chris. Well, you, you've never run for president. And I never will because I'm disqualified due to my horrible country of birth. <laughs> um yes. Crying at work is particularly good if your job is being a stand-up. <laughs> what you want to be the guy who cries? No, I'm just saying, like <laughs> like that would be if you're using that joke as part of your stand-up routine, like you can just spend the rest of the set crying. 